Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Welcome back. Before we hop into things, here is a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on this week's episode. First, why should you care about interstellar dust clouds that are a million times as wide as the Earth's orbit around the sun? What do spectrums of light tell us about the molecular makeup of these clouds, and how much information can I glean from just a single image of a molecular cloud out there in space? Finally, how does the symmetry of molecules factor into all of this? You'll have to keep listening to find out, so let's hop into episode 31, the last of 2020. Here we go. Andrew Sagery's passion for science centers on asking questions, usually about patterns in observations. This has led him to a unified, data-driven view of science. In the first part of his career, he focused on collecting the highest quality and quantity of data as an experimental chemist and physicist. This included work in spectroscopy, polymerization reactions, origins of life chemistry, inorganic catalysis, and fabrication of superconducting qubits. Andrew's current research focuses on analyzing even larger data sets produced by collaborations in astrophysics. He works at the interface of mathematics, machine learning, and astrophysics to try to characterize complex structures found in the dust between stars. His most recent work applied techniques related to JPEG compression to analyze fluid simulations and predict underlying parameters describing their behavior. A 2018 Yale graduate, Andrew has degrees in mathematics, Bachelor of Science, and chemistry, both a Bachelor of Science and Master of Science, and is currently pursuing a PhD in physics at Harvard University. Informed by growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, Andrew is committed to improving the accessibility of STEM education, which inspired him to engineer low-cost conversion kits to turn common high school microscopes into fluorescent microscopes. Outside of the academic world, he enjoys classical music, plays, and science fiction. I think today will be mostly science fact, so without further ado, let's welcome Andrew to the podcast. Andrew, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you too. So this is a jam-packed introduction, and there are so many different fields that you have dipped your toes into. So the first thing I want to do is get a sense of why it is that you're now focusing on physics when you've had all these different experiences studying different kinds of physical sciences. What led you to physics, and why not the others? That's a great question. It's one that all of my advisors and friends ask me, and it really has to do with the data-driven view that I, that I said at the beginning. When I started in chemistry, every time you want another data point, you, know, you have to run another reaction for six hours. And to do good science, you, know, you have to have many, many data points and many, many spectra in order to make a good inference. And so I, I slowly shifted towards more and more physics-related topics, like superconducting qubits, where you get massive amounts of data. You know, Data comes in every, every few nanoseconds when you're doing these pulse sequences. And you're like, oh, that's really awesome. 
unfortunately, in the world of quantum qubits, there's a lot of time on the actually making of the device before the measurement where you get all the data. And so even though you have a lot of data coming in fast, the relative fraction of time that you spend analyzing data is actually, oh, it can be quite low depending on what you're doing. And so I've, I've now migrated all the way into astrophysics and really sort of at the interface of astrophysics and machine learning, because that way I get to actually just process data every day. Like I wake up every day and I'm like, oh, I'll just download this data set and try this new statistic or try this new analysis method. And it honestly, it lets me read all the literatures I really like. Like you see that my undergrad did math and chemistry and things like that. Well, you know, when you analyze the dust in between stars, you have to know what molecules are there. You have to know what the spectra looks like. But when you do that analysis, you have to understand machine learning. And to do that, you really should know group three and representation theory. And, you know, so like, like all these things actually play together in a really beautiful way. And I think I've, I've just been migrating until I found myself in a niche that sort of lets all of those things come together. And that's, that's sort of why I migrated. I totally get that. My expectation, though, is that if you have a field that is at the intersection of so many others, or at least a specific you know, research focus that requires so many disciplines, my assumption is that it would not be incumbent upon one person to have all the requisite knowledge, but rather you'd work as part of a team where you have a, a head chemist, and you have the head astrophysicist, and then you've got the data guy, which it seems like you, you are all of them. Is well, that the case? No, I, I shouldn't overstate that. You know, I really enjoy collaborations. For example, one of the things that I think we'll talk about is this work that we've been doing on fluid simulations. And I'm not the fluid simulations person in that collaboration at all. But it's not about being the expert in everything per se. Like I think I'm probably the data person in most of my collaborations. But it's about being able to speak these people's languages. In order to like do good data processing on a large scale, you need to be fluent in computer science. Like I am by no means like a, like a coding person who is the best coder in the world. But you need to be able to read these papers and to know what people to talk to, at least know the buzzwords uh, to figure out mm -hmm. where to look. And so You're kind of like a translator. Yeah, exactly. Like you should be an expert in something, but you should also be able to translate between all the fields you talk to. And I think that my broad background has really allowed me to do that in a way that's sort of unique. Did this come together by accident or has every single step in your academic path been deliberate? OK, that, that's a good question. A lot of it was deliberate. It's starting from actually in high school when I was studying chemistry. And I was really intrigued by group theory and spectroscopy. And I was like, oh, all right, like I need to get a good math background. And like I just like dove headfirst into math. And I think mm -hmm. once you have both chemistry and math, physics is just like a natural next step to do. That was sort of natural and intentional that I was just like excited about a lot of those concepts in the intersection. Because sometimes physics classes teach the underlying chemistry better. There's, there's sort of a trade-off of like what chemists are best at teaching and what physicists are best at teaching in the same realm. Physicists are much better at teaching quantum mechanics, to be honest. But chemists are much better at teaching you about you know, atoms and orbitals and how it matters for materials. I, I think that was very intentional and holistic. The switch towards condensed matter was a bit unintentional, just based on sort of unhappiness in what I was currently doing and the amount of data that I had, as with the switch to sort of astrophysics uh, and sort of my day-to-day -day life and my day-to-day -day happiness. So those two were just sort of motivated by my experiences. But the other ones were very intentional, actually. So the chemistry math physics background was intentional, and the, the other projects have just sort of evolved organically, I guess. I totally get that. And I'm also a big fan of intersectional research as well, coming from a, a cognitive science background. That's, you know, just it's one of those fields where you're incorporating so many different disciplines together, you know, philosophy and computer science. And you said you're also working with machine learning. Yes. 
as well, you know, so so that also factors into the mix. You did drop two names of things that I'd like to touch on, just quickly to define them for myself and for the listeners, which are group theory and spectroscopy. You said these were two interests that kind of vaulted you into this whole mathematical realm. How would you define group theory and spectroscopy to a lay person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So spectroscopy is really the study of the interaction of matter and light. It's just saying I have some material and I want to probe it. And you can probe it at optical frequencies by shining a light that we can see at it. You can probe it at IR frequencies, so lower frequencies. You you can probe it fast or slow. So there are lots of different types of spectroscopy which depend on the speed. People have these really, really fast femtosecond pulses. In case you're curious, a femtosecond is the SI unit of time equal to 10 to the minus 15, or one quadrillionth. That is one millionth of one billionth of a second in duration. Although I, I never worked on femtosecond pulses, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, so this this really brings you into the realm of optics and lasers. And one of the reasons it's really exciting, and I think has driven some of my view of, of science, is I was interested in spectra of molecules. And so what you're observing is you're observing transitions between energy states. So the molecule can look one way or it could look some other way in terms of its configuration. And there is a signature in the way that light interacts with matter that tells you about that. It tells you about what state it was in and what state it's going to. There's like this implicit sort of inference problem where you're like looking at the spectrum and you're like, okay, what does this mean about the state that the molecule used to be in and the state that it's now in? And what can I learn about this? Sometimes you don't even know the the molecule and you want to learn what the molecule actually is. So it's an unknown. And you're trying to do this really cool sort of guessing game. And this is where I really started thinking about applying higher order sort of not really machine learning, but beginning to pull out information from a dense source using math and using computer science. Are there ever any ambiguities in the spectrum? Like you're, you're saying there, that there are changes in, in energy states. Can you ever look at a spectrum and say, this could be either X or Y? Yes, yes. And so then you have to use multiple different probes. Sometimes it's confused. Sometimes you'll actually have X and Y and they're overlapping and you're going to have to try to figure out how much of X and how much of Y do I have? Or, you know, you don't know if it's X or Y, and then you have to use a different probe. So different probes could be different frequencies of light. Sometimes the two molecules will look the same in optical, but look very different in IR or something like that. Oh, that's that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. This is, there's like so many mental images are coming to mind. One of them is just like superposition photography, where you take two photographs on, on like the same development and you can mm-hmm. see them kind of overlapped on each other. And it's hard to distinguish maybe if a tree was really in one photo or another. But then if you were like looking at he signatures, you would get like a different view of what the objects are represented with some different, you know, Absolutely. aspect of the electromagnetic spectrum. Very, very mm-hmm. cool. So that's spectroscopy. What yes. about group theory? Yeah, so, so group theory is maybe more abstract and mathematical, but it, I like to think of it as the study of the way numbers work. Uh, it really answered a lot of questions for me, uh, like that I asked in elementary school and middle school about like why you couldn't divide by zero and, and, and silly things like this that people don't normally let kids ask about. So it's, it's really the structure of mathematics, I would say. And the reason it's really important for spectroscopy, and at least I'll just try to discuss it in the context of spectroscopy, is it really has to do and is very related to symmetries. So if I have a molecule and it has certain symmetries, like a reflection symmetry, like it looks the same after you take a mirror plane, or if it looks the same after I rotate it by 90 degrees or 30 degrees or something like that. These are symmetries of a molecule. If I know the symmetries, there's actually a group, which is a mathematical object, which describes those symmetries. 
And this group, which is a collection of elements, which sort of represent all those different symmetry operations. So it's a very abstract way of thinking about symmetries. That's all it is. And what's really cool about it is that group theory allows you to analyze whether or not you will see a bump, an absorption, a response of matter to light based on the symmetry of the matter and the symmetry of the light. So you can ask and answer these questions about whether or not I expect to see a feature just from symmetry considerations alone without really even having to have done the experiment. And it really helps the analysis. This is mind blowing. <laughs> Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to the last episode of Abstract for 2020. We're going to be resuming first week of January, so there is absolutely no break in terms of content coming right your way. So enjoy the holidays. If you live with your family, spend time with them. If you live on your own, spend time with yourself. Get to know yourself a little bit better. One way you can know yourself better is by taking the 24 Character Strength Survey on the VIA website. VIA standing for Virtues in Action. I'd love to know what your top five character strengths are. When you do the test, let me know what your results are. Shoot me an email at abstractcast at gmail.com. So great. Group theory, it has to do, at least your application here, to do with symmetries Yes. in these, in these atoms and in these molecules. That's right. Excellent. In fact, group theory in most of physics is about symmetries. It's what physicists really have liked about group theory. And it's actually what I still use about the group theory now, even though it's not about spectroscopy. When you say most of physics is about symmetries, could you give me maybe a, a, a more common example, something to do with maybe Newton's laws or something like that, that the, the listeners can maybe kind of grab onto here? Like, where else oh. would we see symmetry? Oh, the, the actual example I was thinking of was the standard model of nuclear physics, which is um, maybe not a simpler example, but that's a case where people care a lot about symmetry. It's true that even in Newton's laws or when you think about like a rotating body, the symmetry of the body determines how it rotates and its moments of inertia, for example. That's a case where symmetry matters and where the symmetry of the object can simplify the problem a lot. Here's an example that undergrads will care about, right? If you're working on a problem about the rotation of a body, you want it to be as symmetrical as possible because the problem is as easy to solve. And you can say things about how to describe its rotation based on its symmetry. You can make certain claims. So that, that's a simpler case, maybe. That's more mechanics-based. Okay. So all of this applies to you studying space dust. There are so many incredible structures in our universe. I myself have been interested in astrophysics for well over a decade. And to be honest, every time I read a book and they talk about space dust, I'm like, oh, cool, space dust. Can't wait to get to the cool stuff. Can you change my opinion on this? Like, why, why are you drawn to space dust and not the grandiose, large, what people might think are the more beautiful, complex structures? Is there a beautiful complexity to space dust that I don't know about? Oh, there absolutely is beautiful complexity in space dust. I, I, will, I hope I'll change your mind by the end of the podcast. Please. But l let me tell you why I think it's interesting before I tell you why you should also find it interesting. So, I mean, <laughs> okay. I studied chemistry because I liked understanding the fundamental building blocks. You know, I wanted to think about how electrons moved, electrons being a very basic building block. I then also was interested in how those assembled into polymers which can be massive, massive numbers of molecules, very macroscopic, builds, you know, plastic bags that you use at Walmart. But, you know, I was very interested in the molecules, the building blocks. Dust is the same way for astrophysics. Dust is the building block. You know, stars form out of nebula. Nebula, you know, are just gas and dust that merge together to eventually collapse into a star. And gas and dust are emitted when, you know, you have supernova and, and all these other large, more grandiose things, as you said. 
they're fundamentally all coming back to the gas and dust. Like this is the fundamental building block. And so by studying the building block, you get to study these other processes, but you also gain a really deep understanding of the mechanism behind them. And that's always the question I like to ask. It's like, why did something happen? And to answer the question of why, you have to understand the building block of the process. So anyway, that's why I care about dust. This is already making way more sense to me why we have these differing interests, because I've always been much more interested in macroscopic systems. And so obviously gas clouds, space dust in space, these could be you know light years wide. Yes. So these are technically large objects, but what you're interested in is the activity of the microscopic within these larger structures. Well, I should say that, you know, actually most of the structures that I care about are gas clouds that are local in, in the galaxy, which are actually only, you know, some hundreds of parsecs wide. Uh, you know, these, these are things that are very locally nearby, outside the solar system, but of course, much closer. So it's sort of on, it's on the, mm -hmm. the intermediate scale. So here, here's how I think about things size-wise, especially mm -hmm. having transitioned from chemistry where I thought about much smaller sizes to astrophysics, where now I've had to start thinking about larger sizes. I, in general, think about things on relative scales. So I think about electrons as being smaller than atoms, and then I think about atoms as being smaller than molecules. So I think about planets as being smaller than systems, like solar systems, and then you know you sort of have the solar system sizes, which are, are spaced apart inside of a galaxy. So you also have structure inside of galaxies. So you can also think about these intermediate structures in galaxies. Then you have separations between galaxies. So here we're talking about something intermediate between sort of like a solar system and then the actual larger scale structure of a single galaxy like the Milky Way. Yeah, that's, okay. that's how I organize things in my mind. Perfect. Yeah. I also generally think of things in terms of order of magnitude. So is a gas cloud like 10 times the diameter of a solar system, 100 times the diameter, something like that? Some of these gas clouds can be like around a million times larger than the distance from like the Earth to the Sun, for example. So okay. uh, that's, that's a relative order of magnitude, sort of like 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6. Cool. So you just explained why you're interested in these objects. Now, why should I be interested, if not yet? And when I say I, I mean myself and the listeners too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, okay. Well, I obviously think you should be interested already. But one reason you should be interested is <laughs> all of the cool images from astrophysics actually are images of dust. What you're really imaging is the dust around nebula that are like these really awesome, like horsehead nebula examples and things like that. When you image a galaxy, most of the light is actually, it's either coming from stars, which are formed from dust, but a lot of the light is actually coming in the infrared, for example, just from the dust re-radiating. So like human bodies can be seen in the IR, like you know, using heat goggles, a lot of images that we take in space are actually images of the heat of these bodies radiating towards us. And a lot of the mm -hmm. volume of these objects is dust. So when you look at another galaxy, like a lot of the volume is dust and gas, and that's what you're seeing. So as a layperson, you can also really like dust for its visual awesomeness in terms of these really cool pictures. I mean, it's behind everything you're also interested in. So I think that if you could find anything in astrophysics you're interested in, I could tell you why you should be interested in dust relative to that one thing. Right, because it, it is the building block, yeah, right? Exactly. So you can't yeah. have, you know, if you're interested in, in DNA, then you've also got to be interested in like carbon molecules. Exactly, yeah, it's true. And the real question I think everyone needs to ask themselves is how far down the ladder am I interested in going? So I've never gone in my personal research very far into like standard model physics, like thinking about how the nuclei of atoms are built. Like that's a level to which I never decided to go. And you have to decide how far do you want to descend down this like building block ladder. So like, mm -hmm. as you're saying, you might be more interested in macroscopic things and understanding how these systems interact. I, I just happen to be someone who likes to descend down the ladder a few more rungs than maybe some other people do. And we need people like you for that. You mentioned 
a good while back that a lot of what your current work is based on is fluid simulations. Yep. So we've actually already had uh, somebody on the podcast, Austin Lecuyer, who talked about fluid dynamics. So for the listeners, if, if this maybe gets a little bit involved, feel free to check out episode 21 with Austin Lecuyer and get a bit of a background on fluid dynamics. But can you just tell us a bit about how space dust acts like a fluid? And maybe if it's a different kind of fluid than the, the, the things that are in our rivers and in our atmosphere? Oh, it is a different type of fluid. Uh, although a lot of fluids can be described by very similar equations of state. So the actual equations in the physics that are driving them are very similar. Mm -hmm. You can have a set of equations which are very universal that apply to lots of different types of things. Like it can apply to a ball or a chair, each of which have different mass and each of which are very different objects. But they're all like their motion is described by F equals MA. F equals MA, just because I hadn't defined it, that is Newton's second law of motion, which says that force is related to mass and acceleration. Moving forward, yes, F equals MA. Tell me more. So the same thing is true for fluids. There, there are sort of a few unifying fluid equations, which hopefully were discussed in this previous episode. And I study gas and dust, which can be in different states of matter, can be ionized, and can be charged, and can be moving around just sort of like a gas cloud. But the gas in the atmosphere is also a fluid, right? Like this is gas, it's moving around. It just happens to be much colder. So a lot of the gas in the universe is actually quite hot. And so we can study really, really hot gas, which is more plasma-like, for example. So a lot of people in astrophysics think about plasma physics of super hot gas 10 to the 5 10 to the 7 kelvin region which is you know way hotter than you would really experience here on earth but in general density means being cold but but to have a lot of particle interactions which produces heat you have to have a lot of a lot of particles in the same region doesn't that imply higher density no um, i would think about it the other way so when you heat something up really high they have a lot of kinetic energy. And because here you don't have gravity always, or, or gravity can be a small small force relative to other forces, it sort of blows things apart and they become very diffuse. So think about this more like condensation, right? Like water vapor is hot. And as it cools and goes through a phase transition to water, it becomes more dense. Then it goes into ice, right? So it becomes denser and denser as it cools, as the molecules become more and more ordered relative to each other. Now, ice has far more intermolecular interactions than does water vapor. It's denser, but that doesn't mean that it's hotter. So I, I would disagree with your statement and say that in general, when things are denser, it's because they may be interacting more, but they're interacting in a sort of less kinetic energy way and they're starting becoming more ordered. And so when I think a lot about dust clouds, like that's more ordered. But yeah, go ahead. Is there an intersection between fluids and symmetries that we spoke about before? Like, how does symmetry factor into fluid simulations, does it? Yeah, no, it definitely does. In general, these fluid simulations are isotropic, at least the ones that I study. Which means? Oh, sorry, yes. Isotropic means that the symmetry is sort of total. So any symmetry operation you could do geometrically uh, leaves the object relatively unchanged to an observer. So this is not true exactly, right? Like, there are filaments and sort of billows of the gas. But the point is, is that if I were to like make five clouds with the same sort of parameters and look at them from like different perspectives, you wouldn't be able to distinguish which cloud I was looking at from which direction, really. Like they would, they would all look basically the same, where basically the same is a statistical statement describing some property of their distribution. Mm -hmm. So isotropic just kind of means like uniform everywhere. Yeah, it means there's no special direction Yeah, is really what it means. So it doesn't have to be constant density everywhere. It can be fluctuating. But when I say isotropic, what I really mean is that there's no special perspective. Okay. In that sense, there's a symmetry. But there are actually cases 
where that's not true. One of the biggest cases in astrophysics and in most physics of symmetry breaking is magnetic fields. Magnetic fields often break symmetries. There's a clear direction, and as you might know, electrons will travel in a specific rotation around a magnetic field. So if a magnetic field points up, like electrons will, will move one direction and then actually positively charged particles move the opposite direction around a magnetic field. Mm-hmm. That's a large source of symmetry breaking because depending on the charge, like there's a specific directionality relative to the magnetic field direction, which has now changed everything. So actually, one of the applications that we show in our work on these fluid simulations is that the statistics that we have started using are sensitive enough to tell you about the symmetry breaking, even when by eye, looking at the way the gas is laid out, you couldn't tell. So it'll look isotropic to your eye, but to the statistics that we are using, it actually isn't. And you can tell pretty correctly what direction the magnetic field is in and what direction the symmetry breaking is in. And that's that's a way that symmetry has entered back into my work. And now a word from our sponsors. Yeah, we don't have any sponsors yet. So if you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science, whether you are a university or research institute or any organization looking to support the show, please reach out to us over email at abstractcast at gmail.com. If you don't have the means to support us financially and you're just a dedicated listener, drop us a line at the same email. We'd be so happy to hear from you and get some of your feedback on the podcast so far. That's all for me for now. Let's head back to the episode. Very interesting. Okay, great. So are there magnetic fields everywhere in the universe? Is that just kind of like, does it permeate yes, everything? Yes, there are magnetic fields everywhere. Obviously different magnitudes in different places. The relative magnitude that people often cite for the interstellar medium is on the order of microgauss. That's a unit that probably doesn't mean much to the average listener. Or me. Micro, of course, means 10 to the negative 6. Gauss is just a, a you know a unit of measure defined for magnetic fields. What about a fridge magnet? Oh, a refrigerator magnet. Like compared to a fridge magnet. Oh, but the problem is that magnetic fields are distance dependent, right? So like I like there isn't like a number I can give you for a fridge magnet. It's like how close you are to the fridge magnet. So <laughs> right. Maybe maybe I should instead say that in fields that I've worked in where we use large magnets, uh, you generally write down a ten Gauss line that people with pacemakers shouldn't pass because it can like mess with the pacemaker. So that's a large enough magnetic field that's mm-hmm. sort of 10 Gauss that it can mess with your pacemaker. And so the magnetic fields that I'm talking about are micro Gauss. So 10 to the negative six, 10 oh, to the wow. negative six smaller than that. Like a million times, yeah. 10 million times less. Exactly. Pacemakers, come one, come all. If you have a pacemaker, you can live in a, in a micro Gauss. No big deal. Actually, the, the, right, the right reference is to say what the magnetic field of the Earth is. That's just like all around us. And that is 0.65 Gauss. So we're, we're still talking, you know, about a million times smaller than the magnetic field of the Earth. Anyway, that's, that's an order of magnitude to help people latch on to these magnetic fields. But yes, they exist everywhere. It's just a question of magnitude. And they can be very important mm-hmm. for the way that these fluids flow in the interstellar medium. And as we show, we can actually start to detect this, which is really cool. So <laughs> the universe is just one continuous space where the fields, they increase and they decrease in their densities and their strengths, but ultimately everything is, is continuous. Yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's a field everywhere, right? There are charges distributed everywhere. I mean, it would begin to break down at the edge of space if I knew anything about the edge of space. But the point is, is that as long as I have some volume that I can consider, and as long as there are charges in it, I can define an electromagnetic field which is created sort of between those charges. I have some potential, I have some magnetic field. I have some electromagnetic field. 
uh, of course, I guess, with charges, you only have electric field, right? But as long as they start moving, then you have electromagnetic field. And yeah, that exists mm -hmm. everywhere because there's moving charges all throughout our universe. It's a continuous field. We could get lost in the whole universe level discussion, but I just want to bring it back to one thing that was mentioned in the introduction, which I'd like to touch on before we close up shop. What's up with this JPEG compression? So JPEG, I mean, it, 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 it's just a, a file type for images. What exactly are you doing to the good old JPEGs that I haven't done myself? Yeah, okay, that, so this is, this is the actual project that I'm working most, most heavily on at the moment that we've sort of been dancing around talking about fluid dynamics and symmetries. So one question that's really important when you're studying these gas flows and dust flows is to understand how to characterize this notion of sameness that I said. How do I statistically describe a gas cloud, which is, you know, you think about a normal cloud in the sky, it's puffy and curly and they're like filaments going everywhere. Like, how do I characterize sameness with that? And you can analyze these objects and these images by Fourier transform. Just a quick note on the Fourier transform. It's essentially a mathematical function that transforms other functions depending on how they wiggle around, right? These are functions that can be visualized as curves on a Cartesian plane. We categorize these wiggles in terms of amplitude, so how high and how low they go, and in terms of its frequency, how rapidly these curves repeat. And what's amazing about the Fourier transform is that if there are multiple frequencies that are kind of layered on top of each other in this curve, they can be isolated or separated in this new Fourier space. And that's a very simple thing to do, but just looking at the power spectrum, which is the absolute value of the Fourier transform, doesn't give you a whole lot of information. And so we're interested in trying to get more information past that information. And we do that using something called wavelets, which are also used in JPEG compression, which is how it relates. So uh, maybe I should say, this is sort of related to position momentum duality. If you guys have talked about this on the show yet, have you talked about quantum? We, we have not. Okay, so hold on. Yeah, position momentum. This comes back to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's right, that's right. Yeah, it does. Okay, well, let me explain very briefly, yeah. which is that this uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics is actually a more general uncertainty principle. But the basic idea is if I know something very precisely in terms of where it is in position, then I don't know its momentum very well, or, or vice versa. If I know something's momentum very well, I don't know its position very well. Let me just repeat that. This is really critical. If I know something's position very well, it means that I won't be able to know its momentum very well, how it's moving. But if I know how it's moving to a very precise degree, I'm going to have a tough time knowing exactly where it can be found in space. This is a trade-off. And this duality exists also when you look at Fourier transforms of signals. So if I have a signal which is oscillating in time, and I know that oscillation frequency really, really well, it's not well localized in time. It must, I must have many, many periods of its oscillating, and it must oscillate for a very, very long period of time for me to know its oscillation period pretty exactly. And vice versa. If it's a, a very sharp peak in time, then it must be composed of many different frequencies because it's, it's so localized in time. So you can, you can apply the same sort of reasoning to images and the way that the pixels are displayed in an image. Think about an image that you, you care about. I don't know, some, some image of a cat. A lot of features are very sharp and very local, like the edge of the cat or like the tail of the cat. If I had something which is localized in both real space and Fourier space, so now it can't be perfectly localized because of this uncertainty principle. But if it's like pretty small in real space and pretty small in Fourier space, that would actually be a pretty good basis to describe things in. Because that way I'm only picking up a few frequencies, but I'm also picking up only you know local features of an image. And that's what a wavelet is. It's like a sweet spot. Yeah, it's a sweet spot. It's, it's a balancing act 
between this uncertainty principle. That's what it is. So a wavelet is sort of a localized object in real and Fourier space. And JPEG compression basically works by taking an image and representing it as coefficients on wavelets on these localized objects as a basis. So one basis, of course, is pixel by pixel. I have this number and this pixel, this number and this pixel, this number and this pixel, all the way through an image. But that's not very compressed. Mm -hmm. So instead, you can try to represent things as coefficients on wavelets, which are local objects. And that's part of how JPEG compression works. And so we use these wavelets that are used in JPEG compression. Uh, it can basically take a large data set of information, which is n squared pixels, and take it into some smaller dimensional space. And we use these wavelets now on images of density fields of fluid simulations. And we try to take this big fluid simulation and take that information and put it into some smaller set of coefficients and learn about those. And that's where the machine learning comes in, is now trying to do this dimension reduction and, and learning. Hold on a second. It's kind of like we're looking at different regions of an image and averaging them and looking at like larger, as opposed to a single pixel of an image, let's say it's a thousand pixels by a thousand. I could look at like one pixel and then all the pixels in like a three or four pixel radius around it and say something's happening here and average that and then do that elsewhere. Is that what you're getting so That at? is one possible way to use a wavelet. But, so wavelets are better than that because they have phase information. They can actually sort of tell you how the pixels roll as a function of space. So for example, suppose I had a wave where like pixels are bright, then dark, then bright, then dark, and they continuously modulate. The wavelet is actually telling you something about how they continuously go from bright to dark, not just on average, the pixel value is 0.5 in this sphere. It's a little bit smarter than that. It's telling you how much the pixels are oscillating on a certain scale. That's one way of looking at it. So we're not talking about just a single image. We're talking about like a consecutive series of images. No, no, no. We're talking about a single image and we're looking at distance dependent changes relative to a single pixel. So pick a pixel, yeah. an image, and then look at distance dependent changes of other pixels relative to that point. Okay. But then you actually do that for every pixel in the image. Uh, okay. This is a notion of a convolution for people who are really happy with math. You're basically doing this operation where you're looking at these relative distances and then summing over all possible initial positions on the image. Just as a fun challenge, I'm going to bring us back to a segment of the show that we haven't done in a very long time. And it's called Explain Like I'm Five. <laughs> so what I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have you explain your thesis like I am a five-year-old child. You may begin now. Well, okay, I should say I, I'm actually only a third year and I, and I switched into this topic about a half year ago. So asking what my thesis is, is a dangerous thing to ask someone in their third year, but I still have another three years to go. But, right. Okay. The, the basic thesis and, and maybe the science goal, maybe I should just zoom out to the science goal, is to ask, if I observe a molecular cloud out there in the sky via a telescope, so you know, you, one night you woke up and you point at some cloud, can I tell you something about that cloud, some of its properties, something about the way the fluid is flowing? its velocities, its temperatures. The idea is we're trying to come up with a statistic, a way of describing an image of that cloud that gets at that information, that somehow we are encoding and pulling out information from just an image, properties of the fluid. That's the very broad sense of what we're doing. Gaga gugu, I comprende. That's great. Excellent. Okay, cool. I like that. It, it, it's always interesting to, to hear how someone boils down PhD level research into 
something digestible by, I, I don't know, I, I think that, that was maybe, I'd say a little advanced for a five-year-old, but let's just say I'm a very, very intelligent five-year-old. So I'll, I'll take it at that. Yeah. That's great. So I have, I have one more question for you. Okay. This is the last question. So uh, you can interpret this from the perspective of academics or just as a global question about life in general. There are a thousand people listening to you right now. What do you tell them? Hmm. I would, I would mostly encourage people especially young people, to continue asking why things work. I think there's a lot of power in asking the why behind things. And, and, you know, for me, it was about the mechanisms of physical processes. And it's led me down a very interesting path scientifically that I've really enjoyed. And I think it's really important that as you walk down this path, by the way, that you enjoy yourself, which is something that people sometimes forget. Uh, this is really why we're doing it. So, again, asking why. But I mean, it's, it's even true now within science, you know, asking what motivates people in sociology and, and asking why certain political structures are the way they are. Like when you really start to ask these questions, you get to interrogate what's going on behind the scenes. And I think this is where a lot of the really cool thinking and conversations come about. So this is, this is really what I am about and what my sort of scientific career has been about, but also what I think people should strive for scientifically and as, how we should strive to educate sort of the young minds that are growing up, even though I guess I'm still pretty young. But. It's all relative. Yeah, exactly. So not only are you, Andrew, the data guy, you're also the why guy. Yeah, that's true. It's very true. All of my elementary school teachers will tell you that, that was true. Maybe to their chagrin. <laughs> they did not always enjoy it, but it was always fun for me. I've definitely enjoyed it. And for listeners, I hope they also enjoyed it. This was, uh, this was really, really interesting. This is the first episode focused specifically on astrophysics, and there are just so many fascinating topics. And I think this is one people probably knew a little bit less about, including myself. Dust is one of those things that I, I think not necessarily gets a bad rap. It just isn't necessarily always in the news and in the forefront of people's minds. Are you excited about dust now? I'm definitely more excited than I was before. Okay. Well, then, then I've done something good. Absolutely. So thanks again for being on the show. And I hope you have a great rest of your PhD experience halfway through. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com this podcast will be released weekly on sundays and is also available on spotify apple podcasts and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts so feel free to check us out around the internet until then take it easy